to boldly go where no private enterprise has ever gone before. Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. This week on thisiscommonsense.org, Paul began by talking about honor and horror and ended by talking about the horrors in Minneapolis, Minneapolis burning. So here we are, the last week of May 2020, and I'm asking Paul, where do we begin? Where do we go? I've got, this is a curveball. Let's go to Dragon into Orbit, which is a commentary about a first the first time ever, well, first time in nine years, that the U.S. has launched men into space, that they have been launched, even if they were Americans, that they were launched from U.S. soil. And so that's something, especially, I think, uh, in the uh, age of coronavirus, people realize that uh, it may be important at different times that we be able to accomplish things independently. And uh, and that maybe if our supply lines all run through, you know, the world's worst totalitarian uh, power, uh, that could be problematic. So uh, anyway, um, uh, we had a launch and this is the first launch by a private enterprise operation. But we didn't have a launch. Oh, right, right. Well, well, small detail, Tim, small detail. Gee, some people get caught up in the minutia. (laughs) You're right. The weather, which, you know, you would have thought that the modeling that I'm sure has been done all over the place as to what was going to be going on on Wednesday would have said, hey, this won't be a launch. There'll be a lightning strike, you know, maybe at 11.43 a.m., maybe at 11.44 uh, you know, that, that sort of information. So we wouldn't have gone through all the trouble, but it is, it's set up for Saturday. And if it goes off, I guess I am a little, you know, had maybe it was a little ahead of my skis. Uh, but if it goes off, then, uh, then of course it'll be the first time that a private company has, uh, handled the launch of astronauts into space. And uh, it's it's been, as we mentioned in this piece, it's been a long time coming for private companies to be doing it. And uh, I haven't always loved everything uh, Elon Musk has uh, done, Uh, although I have liked some of his uh, recent stuff that that we uh, wrote about, um, you know, opening his Tesla company and saying, you know, I have a right to open it. I'm going to do it. Uh, and he's in California. So, uh, you know, but I, I, I love to see this effort. I love space, the last frontier. Uh, and I love, even though I don't fully understand it, I love mankind's inability to stop looking for new things and finding new things, finding new ways to you know, get on the edge of some cliff, finding new ways. I mean, I think I think back to, you know, ancient times and the first sea travel and so on. And I'm just thinking these guys have to be crazy. Um, but it's, it, you know, we all do it in our own ways, some more than others. Uh, but no doubt it's uh, it's probably the most important survival trait of the human race is the fact that individual humans will experiment the the wisdom of crowds sort of thing where you have all these people who are looking to do new things who are you know uh, the freer they are the more they're they're engaging with the planet and of course with Elon Musk looking to engage with other planets like Mars and, you know, we, we, uh, I don't spend much time worrying about it. Thank goodness. I'm forgetful. But, uh, you know, an asteroid could hit the earth and, and we're gone. And there's all kinds of things that could happen. And it would be wonderful to see mankind advance and for free human homo sapien peoples to be all over the universe would be just wonderful in my book. 
And and so that's a little far afield, maybe from just sending somebody to, uh, you know, the space station. But America, for defense reasons, needs to have a space program and needs to be doing uh, things in space. And this is way too important to leave to the government and private enterprise needs to be engaged in it in ways that that will again bring the wisdom of crowds to the to the issue and uh it's exciting to see it was the best news of the week and even though we didn't have the launch just <laughs> just thinking about it for me it was the best news of the week and and if they push it off saturday i may be on some ledge somewhere you know but but uh, because I'm wanting, I've already counted the good news. And when it happens, I'm like, oh, yeah, I already celebrated. Uh, so, but now I celebrate again. Elon Musk said something kind of interesting this week. Uh, I mean, he's always saying something interesting these days. Sometimes just absolutely crazy. But uh, this this week he said uh, somewhere, I, I forget the exact words, but he said something like, you know, if the launch goes off, NASA will be praised. All the workers will be praised. The companies that involved, everybody, everybody's efforts will receive credit. But if the launch is a failure, I'll receive the blame. And he accepted responsibility. Was basically saying that's appropriate. That he that he needs to accept the blame for that. It's an interesting an interesting attitude he had. I'm not sure what that meant, but uh... it's a great leadership attitude because it's basically saying my payoff comes from seeing the success. And the most important thing for me to do as a leader when there's success is to spend my time thanking everybody else for it and motivating them for it. Because, you know, you've got the time in the shower where you can go, God, I'm a wonderful person. <laughs> God, I'm great. <laughs> my mother was right. Uh, but anyway, but, you know, you want to motivate people. And so that's, you know, it's the old uh, credit goes down, blame goes up. Although it seems in government and in, in industry, you know, one of the problems is bad things that happen in government tend to seep over sometimes into industry and vice versa. And so uh, but but, uh, you know, anyway, it's it's I've completely lost my train of thought as to where where I was because I was about to go somewhere else. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how this goes. But uh, your other pieces this week were not nearly so hopeful uh, no no uh really well let's start with the the worst news of the week which is a man's dead in minneapolis a black man killed by a white policeman behaving badly and we see arson looting riots protests now protest makes a lot of sense um, and, you know, if, if someone throws something at the police station, you know, especially in this area where there's been, you know, this is this is an area where two other uh, very well publicized police murders that just made no sense whatsoever. Uh, Philan uh, Philando uh, Castile, who was the black man who the guy shot five, six times into the car. It's the one people yeah. will probably remember because his girlfriend, well, one, her kid is in the back seat, and just barely, a bullet just barely missed the four-year-old. He told the policeman, I just want you to know, in very calm, reasonable, you know, tone, I, I do have a gun. Well, don't get it out. I'm not going to. Well, don't, don't, don't. Boom, 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 boom. It, it just seemed like it escalated to craziness. And, of course, you can't see everything that's happening in the car. But there was never a good argument for, you know, I mean, at a certain point, you cannot allow police to say, well, I shot the seven fourth graders because I, you know, heard something pop and I thought one of them had a gun. You know, it's and I say fourth graders because at a certain point, if it's if the standard is. I can anytime I make a mistake and blow your head off, if you think it's a somewhat legitimate mistake or could be, it would be on a reasonable doubt, maybe could have been a mistake. It's okay. We're in trouble. I should turn my phone off, shouldn't I? Well, that's an old fashioned ring. It is. I almost always have my phone off. 
drives me crazy. So, um, but anyway, so where where am I with the? Uh, well, you were talking about the killing in the car, but that's just one example of yes. uh, of then, a pattern there in Minnesota. Yeah, well, and then there was the woman who was, I, I believe she was Australian, uh, if I remember correctly, but a uh, white woman, and was she reported what she thought was a rape in behind her house. She heard yelling, and the police came. She went out to, you know, see what was what and to give them any more information she could, and they shot her and killed her. Now, the policeman who shot and killed her was convicted and sentenced to 12 and a half years. Interestingly enough, though, he happened to be Somali-American, so a person of color or a black person or a Somali person, and she, being Australian, was white. And so, again, you have the racial component. Now, you don't hear all the stories when the racial components match up to where it was a black policeman who happened to kill a black person, or it was a black policeman who killed a white person, or what have you. And you look at the propensities for, you know, your your risk, so to speak, of being killed by a policeman. And as I understand it, you have more risk as a white individual than as a black individual. But I know that that's been hotly disputed and so on. The bottom line to all of it, though, is a lot of people want to have a conversation about race. And... Lord knows some people could use multiple conversations, hopefully with the right people. Um, And, you know, that's great and wonderful. But it doesn't solve the problem unless you really think you can get everyone to sit around a a table. It's going to be a really big table. And uh, and, you know, in, in other words, why didn't somebody else think about that? Think of that. And I think from a uh, kind of political revolutionary standpoint, the hardcore people who want change and who see injustice, and some of those people I think are off their rocker. Uh, others of those people are, are wonderful people who are going to make the world a better place. And, uh, and hopefully, hopefully will agree with me more so that, so that all their efforts are more, more uh, copacetic. But anyway, some of those people are wonderful people and, it seems to me that the, 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 the efforts of people to have a conversation have gone to what? To it just keeps happening. The efforts of people to somehow say, well, we have to shake the system. We have to burn down stores. We have to have protests. We have to get more violent, even though, you know, this level of violence isn't isn't the level you see in many parts of the world on on different things. That hasn't worked at all. I mean, let's look at the track record in, in Ferguson. I mean, it does get it does get newspaper stories. It gets more TV if things are burning. But it just has no success in terms of changing the criminal justice system, it seems to me. And and it I want to see focus on things that can actually be changed. And uh, uh, Jay Schweikert with the Cato Institute and with a um, uh, website called unlawfulshield.com uh, has basically launched a campaign to put the focus on what's called qualified immunity and qualified immunity. uh, Basically the, the, the Congress back in the 19th century, when every once in a while, this was 1871 and the Congress did something good. They passed uh, section 1983 of the civil rights law. And this is a section for one, that allows uh, when we sue because a state legislature has passed a law that's totally draconian and, and attempts to silence people through the initiative petition process, we go to federal court when we win, which we almost always do because almost everything they pass is unconstitutional as they know it is as they pass it. Um, but as we go to, to court, it's a uh, under that part of the civil rights law, we are then uh, can be given our fees by the judge. Doesn't always happen, but 
usually does happen. And and so it it is uh, it's difficult to raise money to defend people's constitutional rights. It's very helpful when you can get some or all of that money back once you win the case. And of course, unfortunately, these cases often drag on two or three years or more. But but anyway, these are uh, uh, that section of the civil rights law basically says if a government official takes away your freedom, violates the law and your rights, they're liable. And you can take them to court. They can be you know, arrested for these charges. They don't have some special, hey, I get to punch you in the face because I'm a policeman and you're in my cruiser. <laughs> you know, that's not part of it. And and in essence, what the Supreme Court did in a case was to say there's something called qualified immunity and that police officers and other public officials have that. And so that somehow their behavior has to be more completely outrageous and unreasonable than, you know, that, that it has to rise to some new level of something that clearly they knew violated this person's rights and they had some sort of pre-knowledge that slugging them or, or doing something else was terrible. But this little aspect of the law appears to be responsible for a tremendous amount of violence against Americans and against people. And, and so basically changing this all of a sudden flips the script tremendously and means that, you know, if police start getting convicted for violating people's rights, they will violate their rights less. That's the theory. And, and I submit that creating a dynamic and an incentive for, for police to behave better and frankly for other public officials to be more respectful of people's rights because they could be held liable for violating them is going to create a much kindler, gentler nation. And, uh, and that's, that will go further to repairing race divides and to stopping policemen of whatever race from killing a black man or a man or a woman of any race more than all the discussions on TV, more than any looting will ever deliver. And so that's, uh, that was our Friday script, Minneapolis burning and uh, Minneapolis, a wonderful city. I've spent some time there and twin cities and um, St. Paul can't forget St. Paul. It seems rather hot to me, by the way. What I took away from Minneapolis was that it was unbearably hot, but I visited in July, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think that's funny because Minneapolis is probably the coldest place I've ever spent any time. <laughs> now, I was only there in the summer a few times. It's very, I thought it was nice in the summer. Oh. A few more mosquitoes than I particularly prefer, but, uh, but it was nice. But boy, in the winter. Because uh, I'd spent some time, I was actually born in the Chicago area, and I spent some time as an adult in Chicago, about a year. And um, boy, you know, Chicago's pretty cold, but compared to Minnesota, Minnesota is just, I can remember sitting in my car one day and hearing on the radio that it was 35 degrees below zero and thinking, hopefully, hopefully my car, you know, is, uh, is going to warm up fast because I'm outside a hotel and I've already turned in my key. I'm not sure I could get in the door. I might freeze to death before I walked around the, you know, the hotel. Oh, oh that's a cold place. The, the car did warm up fast enough, okay. just in case anybody was wondering. Whenever anybody talks about how cold it is in the Midwest... I remember how deep the ice was in the ice age over the over Minnesota, two miles thick. Oh, <laughs> really? It wasn't a small glacier. The uh, Laurentide Glacier was huge. Giant Carson would say, "I did not know that." Yeah, it's just an amazing thing, and uh, it meant that the world was very different thirteen thousand years ago. Uh, but uh, I should also mention that uh, the world is still changing, and we still have an amazing uh, menace not just from our police and our our government but from overseas and on the thursday you had a quite a quite a take on the chinese problem 
Yes, it's uh, I, you know, it's kind of hard. There's so many things going on with China, um, and and I've mentioned in previous podcasts how for basically the last year since the 30th anniversary of of uh, Tiananmen Square and uh, the massacre and um, that happened largely outside the square um, and my trip to Taiwan and to Hong Kong and so on. Uh, I've picked up on China and what a threat it is. And of course I've lived my entire adult life and maybe even before I quite got to my adult life, um, realizing that the United States government was way out of control. And in my view, the biggest threat to the, to me and to the rest of the world in large part, because I viewed Russia and China during my youth correctly, I think, as not that much of a threat to the folks around them. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say, oh, they were peaceful, wonderful people. They weren't. They were just maybe bumbling uh, tyrants. And so they just didn't have the ability to project power, you know, as much as the U.S. did. And, of course, I grew up during Vietnam and, and things that, that uh, certainly focused me on the power my government had to control my life and uh, to do things in the world and then to combine those two. Uh, and and so anyway, I, I but I came to the conclusion that the Communist Party in China, the CCP, is more dangerous, is a more dangerous threat to me and to the world as a whole than the United States government <clears throat> and to any other government. One, 1.3 billion, 1.4 billion people that live under a high-tech totalitarianism, uh, no free speech, no elections, uh, one-party state where 25 Politburo folks and really Xi Jinping, um, you know, runs the world for 1.4 billion people. And they are wed to that idea. They're pushing that idea. But as they have begun to clamp down in uh, Hong Kong with the coronavirus, uh, basically kind of freeing them up to do that and, and delaying the protests that had run for, you know, better than half a year. Um, and of course, those protests, people, I, you hear so much different media stuff. These protests are over, you know, to, to just give a quick history. Uh, Britain, with some gunboat diplomacy, took Hong Kong. They ran it as a uh, their little, you know, province. Uh, they turned it back over to Hong Kong or to uh, China in 1997 with a 50-year agreement that it would be an autonomous place that, you know, had had some uh, autonomy. Now, the CCP, one, their leader, uh, when you hear about Carrie Lam and the fact that everybody in Hong Kong hates Carrie Lam, who is the chief executive of the Hong Kong government, you might also want to know that Carrie Lam was picked by Beijing, not by the voters of Hong Kong. And so Beijing is controlling so much of what's going on. Well, this latest national security law, which, you know, does some things like uh, you can't boo the national anthem at a soccer game or anywhere else, can't do anything that's seditious. So that's if it's too anti-Chinese, that's somehow sedition, foreign influence. There can be no foreign influence. So if you talk to any foreigner, you might be arrested. It is basically full-fledged tyranny coming directly from Beijing into Hong Kong. And where is it being passed? Well, it's being passed in China. It's not being passed in Hong Kong. It's being passed in China and implemented in Hong Kong. And of course, some of the separations about not having like a police presence and a, and a headquarters in Hong Kong that operates as a governmental body uh, that's changing. So, you know, it's, it's not as if this is a surprise, but it's interesting to me that they can't wait. They can't wait 27 more years when they could do this somewhat lawfully. Of course, you could never, you can't enslave people lawfully. That's a BS law. And so, you know, you can't do that. But in essence, they could say, well, now this is our agreement. We're not violating at least our agreement with the British. 
So um, this National Security Act has, you know, they've tried different aspects of this for years. And there's been protests every single time. And there are protests now. But you just see the clampdown coming. And I think in part because China realizes maybe the gig is up. There is a scene in Casablanca, the great movie made during World War II. Humphrey Bogart is in his <clears throat> Rick's Place Cafe in Casablanca. And he's drinking because the woman he loves has just walked back into his life. And, it, you know, it's all a mess and so on. And so has a fugitive and the Nazis are there. And it's all, all the things you, you know, that make life, you know, wonderful. Um, so he says to the piano player, hey, his buddy, um, what time is it in America? which of course is a ridiculous thing to say because America has many time zones. But anyway, what time is it in America? His watch has stopped and then says, I'll bet they're asleep all over America. And of course they are probably because it's, you know, but um, on the other side of the world almost. And it, I keep thinking of that. I keep thinking of that moment in that film because I feel like in the same way after Tiananmen Square, we were somewhat asleep. We were somewhat, you know, we had become very hopeful that, you know, China's on the brink of kind of a full-fledged democracy where, you know, it, it just would be a beautiful thing. It's a huge number of people in this world. And, uh, and then that is scuttled and people are murdered and no, we're back to one party state. And with wealth has not come freedom uh, it's come a much wealthier threat. And, and it just, it's part of what our commentary, you know, went through is all the different things that have happened just since the coronavirus was spread around the world as the Chinese were arresting doctors who were trying to warn about it and covering it up. So that's what happens. And then during April and May, um, in, a, in a piece in The Atlantic, um, uh, Tim McLaughlin writes uh, and talks about how a Vietnamese boat was sunk in the South China Sea, how China is claiming islands that have been claimed by Vietnam, how uh, Malaysia, uh, an oil rig, was basically just uh, surrounded by Chinese vessels and then Australian and U.S., uh, naval forces came in. I, I regularly keep up with what's happening in the Taiwan Strait, the the hundred mile uh, wide uh, part of the Pacific between Taiwan and China. And I don't remember in years past ever hearing anything ever, ever about ships going through there or whatever. Well, U.S. ships are going through there all the time now. Um, and maybe they have been for years. But part of it is that China is running all kinds of war games and different things, invading Taiwanese airspace with their jets and doing just just doing different things to threaten Taiwan and has said recently, you know, that they feel perfectly justified in invading and taking over Taiwan. And, you know, you can we could go through the whole historical thing, which we have before in one of these podcasts, I believe. But um but even without all that, what's obvious in Hong Kong, what's obvious in Taiwan, are these are people with freedom who want to keep it. The elections in Hong Kong uh, this last December, 87% of the candidates who won were pro-democracy candidates, new candidates in a pro-democracy effort that didn't exist before. That's the kind of support, 87% the kind of support that that the pro-democracy forces in Hong Kong had in Taiwan they've had some economic problems uh, just slowdowns and stuff part of it because Beijing is trying to you know mess around with a very pro-Taiwanese regime president uh, Jiang Ing-wen 
uh, is, you know, has been very good in terms of China has to respect us and we're going to do what we're going to do. And so um, it's interesting to see the world start to wake up. Uh, it was interesting to see that uh, President Tsai in, in uh, Taiwan uh, came out and said that they were going to reevaluate because of this national security law. Uh, whether they were going to keep their relations with Hong Kong, their trade relations. And of course, it was a, a precursor. I thought it was smart that she got out early because Pompeo announced to the Congress that he was not going to uh, uh, certify that China, that Hong Kong was an autonomous region. Well, it's not autonomous. It's just obvious as can be. But I'll tell you what, in past administrations, I have to at least wonder if they wouldn't be finding some way to supposedly put diplomatic pressure on the Chinese, but to certify that, yes, well, we're going to say it's still autonomous, so to not upset any of the trade stuff going on. And of course, there's different ways to deal with trade. I, you know, we, we could go into a long thing. But from just the standpoint of actually showing up and saying, hey, no, we're not going to go along with you taking over Hong Kong and us turning, you know, looking the other way. Um, the Trump administration has come to the table. There's a number of things happening now. Japan is actually paying the cost to move, to, to pay for their companies. I don't think I'd be willing to subsidize my our American companies in this way, but it's interesting. Japan is paying the cost, the government, the taxpayers, to move companies back to Japan from China. Um, the federal pension system uh, was looking to start investing in Chinese companies. And the Trump administration came up and said no. We're not going to allow that. And so there's all kinds of things like this happening. And I have a hopeful view, even though things look very dire in Hong Kong. And uh, and, you know, I think we have to keep, you know, it, we're we're not out of the woods uh, in terms of this menace. But we have at least, I think, begun around the world. People have begun to see what this is. And. And friends of mine that I communicate with and in uh, that part of the world, I, um, I point out that, you know, I don't necessarily, as good as the Trump administration has been on China, and I think it is a noticeable improvement over past administrations, I don't trust the Trump administration. I don't trust the Republicans. I mean, they've been better, and I applaud that. Uh, at least on this, on this, these issues uh, regarding China. Although Democrats have not been terrible on some of these issues, for the most part, it seems to me that at, in the White House, we have wanted and and you know people paying attention to the whole issue of China have mainly been people who want to make money in China. Well, you know they're not looking to cause some problem and to you know hold up the flag for human rights so that their company gets deep six. The whole reason they're at the party is because they're trying to make money in China. What's happened is that the public has showed up. What's happened with this virus, what's happened with the Uyghurs, has gotten, finally gotten out to the rest of the world. And then that's just the, that's just the tip of the iceberg. You find all the other things that have, have gone on during the CCP's reign in China. So the public, the nice thing is, we don't necessarily have to trust Trump as much or Biden, should he be as elected as much? Because both of them are going to be somewhat constrained by public opinion that sees China as a tremendous threat, as a menace to their own people and to the rest of the world. And, and that changes the dynamic. And thank goodness. And that's why you know, not that we haven't done most of it, but for whatever small part we have played in these podcasts and at thisiscommonsense.org in highlighting what's going on with the Communist Party in China 
and what's happening in Hong Kong and Taiwan and other places in the world, uh, Australia, where you know they're at loggerheads in terms of economic issues because China had so has so much different hooks in that country in the in academia and in business that uh, it's it. You know, there's a real battle going on. And then, of course, I before we close this one, I also threw in, I had read something a couple of weeks ago about a little skirmish on the border of India and China. And I got a little kick out of it. I have to I have to confess and I apologize, but I got a little kick out of it because I thought, well, this is kind of a silly story that, you know, somebody marched the wrong way down some road in the Himalayas. And uh, or I don't even know if that that far is still the Himalayas. Probably is. Anyway, they were they're on some road and they got on the wrong countryside, and so it was all probably a big misunderstanding. Well, it turns out it's not a big misunderstanding. That India is trying to develop some of that area. That China doesn't want them to develop that area. And anyway there was an, another story that came out just yesterday the day after we did the the piece disgraced and rage belligerent about china and uh and it appears that more forces have been moved into that area and so if you look at it you just see the situation where you know beyond all beyond concentration camps and Hong Kong and I mean you, India now is is having trouble with China. This is just it it just you know there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to say grace over. Yeah, the problem I see is that all this uh, pulling back out of trade agreements, uh, trade restrictions. This is often a prelude to war, and. China itself, the Chinese government, the junta or whatever you want to call it, uh, they're under pressure. I mean, they, they're not. It's not a stable situation, and that could be really bad. I don't know what to say about it. It, it is hard to know. We we know that in 1989 there were major protests, and that protests that started at the universities quickly spread. And there are polls and different people who tell you that, the, oh, the Chinese government's usually popular. I just have to say, and I don't have evidence, I'm just telling you what my nose tells me, they are usually unpopular. You don't become popular by, you know, being a totalitarian. And, and so I do think that there's, you know, you could see some revolution in China. You could see all kinds of change happen within China. And ultimately, I mean, militarily, there's no way for the U.S. or anybody to protect Hong Kong militarily from China. It's just, that's not going to happen. It's, it's difficult enough. Thank goodness that the Taiwan Strait is a difficult waterway. Uh, to launch a amphibious landing on on Taiwan, uh, but um, it's it's difficult to defend Taiwan. Ultimately, and and China's big enough that if it wants to go to war different places, it can. Ultimately, though, even if you protect all all the surrounding area, the rest of the world, 1.3, 1.4 billion people in China, they cannot live under complete tyranny forever. And so it's it's one of those things where this has to change. So hopefully it will not be war. I think, you know, it's hard to know because we, we don't have the, you know, we only have the time that we have since World War II. It does seem like in a nuclear age, major powers have been less likely to go to war with one another. And even the, you know, even the, the kind of proxy battles tend to be lower scale uh not allowed to get to a bigger scale but you know that that's true until it's not true yeah that's and that's so it's it's a very dangerous world i know from a libertarian standpoint i've always considered myself a non-interventionist and i still consider myself a non-interventionist but i am not i i want the people of taiwan and south korea and Japan to be free 
just like I want the people of Alabama and Missouri and California to be free. And, and so I am, I do think that it's useful. Like, I don't think there's anything that says you cannot have military alliances. I would think, though, that we would want alliances that are agreed to by the public in some democratic way. And you could say, well, the, the Congress could pass a treaty. Well, if we had a representative Congress, that would be true. We don't. So there's all kinds of problems there. Okay. But, <clears throat> but however we do it, I do think it makes sense to have agreements with free countries that can stand on their own two feet, uh, like Taiwan and Japan and, and uh, South Korea. And I would think that I would not want to have um, alliances with countries that did not defend the freedom of their own people. What would be the point? And in that way, of course, it, the idea would be the American people, what is our goal around the world? Well, it seems to me our goal around the world is to be able to do business. And and most of us aren't <clears throat> going to do business around the world. And it's not like, oh, we love multinational corporations. We just so want you guys to do business. But I do want them to do business. I do want those products. I do want somebody shipping stuff from the other side of the world. Um, so we, we, we want to do business. We want to be free to travel and see this beautiful world. Um, and it seems to me that uh, we have an interest in maximizing that freedom for everyone. And this becomes a problematic suggestion because you could easily say, well, this is just an entangling alliance that's going to get us drawn into some war. But I would argue from our current standpoint where we are policing the world is how we have to begin. How, from that standpoint, do we look at the, at the globe and say, where are we going to continue and where are we not going to continue things? And I guess what I would argue is we want to look to end being an empire. We want to release any from, from any commitments <clears throat> where we are defending a tyrannical regime. And I realize, look, people are going to have different definitions of what tyrannical means. But I, I would want a government that seriously, just like the recent decision about Hong Kong, didn't look at some region that just had had its autonomy completely stripped away and pretend that it had autonomy anyway. And, of course, we do that all the time. I mean, we have certified, I believe, a zillion times <clears throat> that Egypt is a free and wonderful democratic country and stuff so that we can continue to fund their military. Um, so I recognize that the government can lie about these things, but I do think that that's where the American people are generally, that that's what they want out of foreign policy is a world that's easy to navigate as a tourist and as a businessman and for free people to be defended from tyranny. And, uh, and it'd be interesting to see that presented to the American people. Like, I've always thought one of the neat things about running for president is you're going to talk about the world some. And less so, it seems like, in recent elections, even though we haven't we haven't reduced our footprint around the world, but we talk about it less and talk more about our own you know, economy. But uh, but I think it would be interesting to take that to the American people, because as we've talked on this uh, podcast a lot, we need the public to be engaged in the political process at home and across the board. We need to leverage free people living somewhere else. If anything happens to us, you're our, you're our hope. It, it reminds me of Winston Churchill in World War II saying that even if they took England, the empire would still be there. And I don't like the idea of an empire but I think a lot of that empire, in other words, if if something happens one place, there's support for free people other places. And, and we want that sort of world. We don't want to retract. We don't want to say, no, we can't have an agreement. There's nothing about freedom that says you can't make an agreement with another free 
person or free corporation or free, <clears throat> you know, uh, soccer club or free country. And, and so the idea, it seems to me, is we ought to be coming back to a more uh, sensible foreign policy, less of an empire, but with those sorts of goals in mind that, that we want to do it in such a way that maintains the freedom of navigation and the, and, and the ability of people to have a free world to trade and to, and to meet each other and have dinner with each other in. Well, that certainly seems to lead into Tuesday's piece, uh, the pandemic turning point, because uh, Americans are getting a little tired of lockdowns, and it seems that they want freedom to move about and trade. You know, I got a tremendous amount of feedback on this particular script, and especially on that map that we showed. And we should put the, the map up so people can see it. You see this huge area of almost the entire country in green, and then you see tiny areas of yellow, uh, New Orleans, you know, Chicago area, I think, uh, East Coast, especially New York area, D.C. kind of up, and um, a little bit on California. And then you see red at New York City. And it basically makes the point that the number of deaths from COVID-19 in the green area, which is literally the entire country, are equal to the number of deaths in the yellow areas, which are tiny, tiny, which are equal to the number of deaths in the red area, which is basically just New York City and very close in surrounding area. And it's, you know, you begin to realize part of part of, I think, the initial reaction to it was the fact that where media is, New York, D.C., were hotspots, especially New York, where a lot of media is. And so it was a big, big deal. And, and of course, it is a big deal. Um, but it was a bigger, a more immediate deal about overwhelming everything, which, of course, it ended up not, you know, we weren't overwhelmed for ventilators or beds or anything else, as we've talked about many times. Um, but the other thing was, that didn't mean that in upstate New York, it was a devastating situation. And there's so many places, you know, in Arkansas, which is where I grew up, um, they never did shut down. The governor never issued a stay at home order that was universal throughout the state. And, uh, and basically a lot of businesses closed. And this is what we've said a number of times, but, let people make their own decisions. Freedom is not only the right thing and nice, it's also the smart thing to do because who knows whether this business can operate safely. Let people make their own judgments who are actually at that business, not at some capital, you know, some room off the press operation in the Capitol or the governor's mansion who's, you know, 200 miles away and just thinking about how to protect their fanny from being accused of getting somebody killed. And of course, that's the other thing, is let the people who are on the, you know, it's their business that's gonna go under. Um, and it might go under because they opened it and someone got something and they were sued, or it might go under because they don't open it. Let them make that decision when otherwise the decision is gonna be made on the longer I hold out, the less anyone can accuse me of getting anybody killed. Trust me, no person, no politician wants to be accused in TV ads, 30 second, 15 second spots, that they got a bunch of people killed. And so it has created a, a, uh, a just a very weird situation, it seems to me. The other thing we point out in Pandemic Turning Point is the idea that lives are lost in shutdowns and that <clears throat> and it's the old it wasn't it Bastiat who was the the seen and the unseen and so you you do a minimum wage and you hike it up to $15 and the guy who's still working at the restaurant <laughs> as a busboy is now making 
$15. And boy, he sees that. But the guy who you, the boss said, look, we're, we're just don't have enough hours anymore to keep you on who lost his job. He doesn't realize it was the $15 minimum wage. And in the same way, I think um, we have a situation where when you shut down an economy, you create a cascade of events that are going to result in deprivation and death. Uh, we pointed out one simple way uh, is the fact that people are, were not doing operations that they needed because the operations weren't deemed emergencies because they didn't have to happen or they would die today. Well, you go three or four weeks and maybe they didn't know quite how long the heart was going to hold out or how quickly that artery would be blocked. And so it does get blocked. You have a heart attack. You weren't where somebody could get to the hospital. You're, you're, you die. Um, and so there are all these different scenarios in which a shutdown can get a lot of people killed. None of those are counted against the fact that people are dying. And, and of course, a lot of people, you know, we're hearing stories all the time about 96-year-olds who get COVID-19 and live. But there are also 96-year-olds who get COVID-19 and die. And, you know, I think in some years, they, you know, maybe they would be a flu death if they had the flu. But a lot of these are people who are in very compromised positions. And so I'm not saying their life matters any less. It doesn't. But I'm saying as far as public policy goes, we ought not say their life counts more than the life over here that will be lost because, you know, because somehow we can identify them more easily. So that's, uh, I, I do think it's going to be very interesting because the media is so on the side of shut down forever, uh, you know, and the death game and so on. And yet I think the public is going to turn Against, I mean, it's already starting to turn against these shutdowns. Now, the polls, I believe, all show that people are still scared to open up and so on. But all of this, I think, is going is likely to roll in such a way that uh, come election day in November, the shutdowns do not seem, the lockdowns do not seem uh, uh, to have been a very good policy. Well, I'm certainly agree with with you on that one. Uh, it looks also like that. Uh, by tracking people on you know their iPhones and things like that, uh, using that tracking, much of the travel element of the lockdowns is over. People are have have, have basically determined that they're going to do what they want to do. So it's really only a question of the of the businesses and the churches uh, and so forth that have been shut down, and that's the only real issue here because the people themselves are not in lockdown anymore. They're ready to go. Yes. You know, the other thing that uh, we mentioned in that commentary that that I think it w was interesting, and I was glad to in include it because I, I to me, it, it meant something early on in this. Remember all the gnashing of teeth because of the people in spring break, the young people partying and so on. And it has come out that not a single COVID-19 case has been traced to spring break in Florida. And part of it is, you know, being outdoors, this is not an outdoor disease. It's not being spread outdoors. And I, I suspect that if there were cases that were spread, they were asymptomatic, which is going to be more likely among younger people anyway. Um, so it's, you know, we, we, we sometimes get a little bit, uh, too quick on the on the oh my goodness somebody you know somebody did something that I wouldn't have done therefore they're the worst people in the world and it turns out that the the evil spring break partiers uh, didn't hurt anybody other than themselves maybe if they imbibed too much. Well, that's uh, four out of five uh, common sense commentaries for the week. And we sort of, sort of uh, recycled a common sense, which we've done from time to time. Memorial Day holiday. I wanted to bring up something that we 
did last Memorial Day because I think it is I've done a lot of stuff about the draft um, and, you know, issue near and dear to my heart and something that we have to decide whether to expand registration to uh, women, young women, uh, or better just end it for everybody. Uh, so that's an issue that that's coming up. Um, but the issue of military service and well, uh, I'll just mention what happened uh, last year, right around uh, July 4th uh, or right around Memorial Day. Um, the U.S. Army on its Twitter feed asked people, how has serving impacted you? How has your service in the Army impacted you? <clears throat> and, you know, the, the obvious, you know, idea is, uh, oh, I learned, you know, I learned to be a man or whatever. You know, some wonderful thing happened. I met people. I gained in increasing knowledge. The discipline that I was fostered in me led me to be a successful businessman. You know, whatever uh, wonderful story there would be. And there were some positive stories. But what there was also about 500 times as much of were rants and not not unsophisticated or unintelligible rants but very intelligible rants about being screwed over mm -hmm. uh about leaving limbs on the battlefield and then not being taken care of once you get home uh, you know, everything from being uh, defrauded in the sense of told one thing to get in the door and then not given that, that you know, uh, field of, of work in the Army to giving your, uh, your all and parts of your body and watching friends give their all and then coming home and not getting any help. Or treatment uh, for your injuries and you know we, we this is a country where we're constantly here thank you for your service to military people we are the number one superpower hurrah hurrah you know throughout the world the military is is respected um, I don't think there's you know there isn't one percent of the population that would be against spending a little more money to make sure veterans who came back without a leg or who came back shell-shocked, uh, PD, uh, PSTD. Uh, PTSD. PTSD. But, they, you know, they, they wouldn't want that to happen, whether on the right, the left. We all want that to happen. And yet, going back all the way, I don't know what it was like before I was born, but I know from Vietnam all the way to the present, the VA has just been pitiful. And again, I know it's not it's not that the VA, VA, all the good people went to work somewhere else and all the bad people went to work at the VA. I guarantee you, under the right management, you take all the people that are at the VA today and they could run a good system or they could run a, you know. The problem is... There's not the political push to do it. And again, that tells you we're not being represented. We want it to happen universally almost. Almost universally, we want veterans to be taken care of. They're not taken care of. Why is that? It's, it just is a, it's a complete governmental breakdown, and it's happened for decades. The other thing is we want to thank people for their service, but wait a second, don't we also need to consider that we've gotten involved in all kinds of things that have cost thousands of people's lives? Um, we're going to stay in Afghanistan. How many, how many people to, do you, Mr. and Mrs. America, how many people are okay to die in Afghanistan for what we're accomplishing there? What's your view? Are we accomplishing enough that there should be another death another maybe another hundred or a thousand americans who die over there and 
And that's what we don't get at all on Memorial Day. It's easy for everyone to virtue signal that they said thank you, but that's not our job is not as like the hospitality staff for the for the Pentagon. Our job as citizens to decide what this country's going to do and whether either our kids or somebody else's kids are going to be, you know, and I'm an old fogey, so I can say kids, but but whether they're going to be killed, whether they're going to come back without a leg. And and so anyway, it's it's every Memorial Day. Um, I wouldn't mind rerunning this piece. One, it's one less piece I have to come up with. But but no, seriously, um, because it's not it's just not talked about much. We hear about the V.A., uh, but it's almost like, oh, that's government. Well, it's us. If, if, if we want to somehow, it just seems to me that to, to, to walk around saying thank you for your service, like somehow we're all part of this big gang together, and then not to take any frigging responsibility for the fact that they you know, are decimated physically and sometimes mentally and are given no care. Or then to have no dog in the fight about whether we go have some fight that gets a bunch of more people killed. This, you know, it, the problem isn't saying thank you for your service. The problem is in not holding our government accountable. There are ways to do it. Come to thisiscommonsense.org. You'll see some things that are happening. You'll see links to other things. There are ways to get involved. You can also go to libertyifund.org, uh, where the Liberty Initiative Fund uh, is actively working with people around the country. And you can go to citizensinchargefoundation.org or citizensincharge.org and get involved in helping initiatives and referendums. One of the new ideas I have for initiatives around the country is to take on this qualified immunity. Let's just, we don't have to wait for the Supreme Court to take a case. Now, maybe they'll do it for us, but maybe not. Why wait? I'd love to see uh, uh, that on the ballot. That could be on the ballot somewhere in 2020 if people move fast. And it'd be great to see someplace. Um, It would take some education of people as to what it was, but it might send a good message. It'd be... uh, be interesting to see if we could still make the ballot in Minneapolis. Well, that's interesting. And it is about accountability. Uh, people forget it's not a question of, it's not really even out there. It's it's a basic American idea. It's, it's, it's part of liberty. It's, it's, it's just really basic. Yes. Yes. And, it, and it, it, it seems to me that it doesn't mean there isn't things happening about race. But it's just here's something that we don't have to control what's in somebody's head. We can control what's written down in a law book. And we know it will dramatically change. And one reason people will know that it will dramatically change the way courts deal with some of these things is because we'll get a heck of a lot of fight from the police unions and the prosecutors who want this, you know, who want this unlawful shield. That's what what they call it, because it does. It shields anything they do. And and I do not fear that somehow, you know, police are going to be walking on eggshells because if they look at somebody the wrong way, you know, they're brought up on charges. We see how far it's gone the other way to where somebody for no reasons, a policeman can fire seven times into somebody right point blank range. Or this guy where we've just seen so many cases where it just makes no sense. And it it doesn't mean, you know, the the, the goal isn't to, you know, uh, the goal is to have accountability. Exactly as, as you said and the piece said, because it's like with police cameras. Sometimes the police, sometimes they help the policemen, sometimes they they don't help so much. Because the policeman either did the right thing or he didn't do the right thing, and and uh, I'm I, I think the the public tends to give the policeman the benefit of the doubt anyway, and for the law to so put its big thumb on the scale for the policeman, it has just created a situation in which we see the film 
of people like Tamir Rice, you know, I think was 12 and in the Cleveland area being gunned down. Um, you know, we see it and we just think this is, this can't be. And yet the policeman, no charges off scot-free. So we, we've got to do something about that and we can, that's the good news. So what did we learn this week? Well, I learned that I could be wrong. Uh, there was more than one happy, hopeful piece written by Paul Jacob on thisiscommonsense.org this week. I also kind of misstated the Ice Age business. You know, the ice uh, sheet, the Laurentide ice sheet was uh, thick in some places, not so thick in others. And Minnesota, well, Minnesota had lakes over it, huge lakes, vast lakes during the period, you know, here and there. There's the uh, Duluth Lake, I think, and there's the... Lake Agassiz. So, if you want to learn about uh, Ice Age geology, you probably don't turn to me. And you say you don't turn here, you come here for politics from an individualist, libertarian, conservative, citizens in charge kind of perspective. And that's what we got here at thisiscommonsense.org and This Week in Common Sense, which you can find through several podcatchers and at SoundCloud. This Week in Common Sense. And my name is Timothy Verkula. I make mistakes all the time. But you can catch me at locofoco.net and at workman.com. That's workman with an I, not an O. And we'll uh, chat later. Thank you.